My next guest for many people is very well known because he stimulated thought. He stimulated people to try to examine many of the ways that we were living. He's the author of The Population Bomb, Betrayal of Science and Reason, How Anti-Environmental Rhetoric Threatens Our Future, and uh, he is with us now. He is Professor Paul Ehrlich. He is uh, he is one of the uh, co-founder with Peter Raven of the field of coevolution, and he's pursued long-term studies of the structure, dynamics, and genetics of natural populations. Nice to have you with us today. It's nice to be with you. You're a little faint, however. Okay, we'll punch up the volume a little bit you for you. You get turned up. All right. Despite our efforts to save the environment and create some form of sustainable peace, we have done a lot of damage to the cradle of civilization. We have created conflicts of generation. We've created enormous debt for our children and their children. And many of us have come to see this as absolute just selfish self-absorption by ideolog- ideologues without any, any context of humanistic or spiritual values. It's like, they're the enemy, we're not, we have to go in there and set everything straight. And then we go in, and I've, I filmed in Iraq, and I'm seeing children who where there's an epidemic of cancer. The doctors there have never seen these cancers before. We interviewed many Iraqi doctors, and they say, these are due to depleted uranium. You never hear a word about depleted uranium and the, the thousand tons we've exploded in their country. You see home after home destroyed, 14,000 in Fallujah. We never hear about this. You see 500,000 refugees in one city. We never hear about this. We see Gulf War vets coming home sick. We don't hear about that. So a lot of what we are missing in our discussion of the impact we have when we go into a place is either avoided by intent or by ignorance by the media to the American public. And would we have a different view of our presence and our impact if we were to see all of the consequences of our being in a place. Your thoughts, please. Well, (laughs) my thoughts are that, of course, this has been a horrendous mistake. But, of course, it's a a typical example of what Barbara Tuchman called the March of Folly. That is, a government doing something incredibly stupid, not in retrospect, but when uh, virtually everybody with any sense before it happened said, this is crazy. Anybody who knows first of all, about the history of the Middle East, could easily predict what would have happened when we went into Iraq. From the point of view of an ecologist, it's much worse than that, because, of course, this is basically a struggle to control oil supplies that we shouldn't be burning. In other words, everybody's worried about global climate change, as they should be, although it's only one of a series of such things they should be worried about. And yet here we are fighting like crazy uh, to get hold of Iraq, to get control of one form or another of Iraq's oil. Uh, one of my colleagues said shortly before uh, the invasion, she said, do you really think we'd be invading Iraq if their major export were broccoli? Uh, so, and this morning in the, in the paper, I saw, uh, again, this time Afghanistan, another place we've invaded, uh, the statement that an entire family, women and children too, were killed by two 2,000-pound bombs designed to get an al-Qaeda operative. Well... If your family had an al-Qaeda operative somewhere around them and somebody dropped two 2,000-pound bombs to get them and killed your uh, wife, your mother, your children, uh, what would your attitude be? In other words, what we're doing is making ourselves a 
huge number of enemies uh, because we're trying to keep the empire together. And our kids and our grandchildren, if there are any, are going to, I already have grandchildren, are going to pay a huge price for this, and we may ourselves. By the way, yesterday it was 16 innocent civilians killed in Afghanistan yesterday. So every day there's more of this, and, and that's only what we hear about. And these are people's kids and wives and mothers, and they just want to lead uh, happy, healthy lives like the rest of us. What does it say about how we view the environment and how the wealthiest people in the world have a perspective that is completely different because they're not living in these communities. They're not searching for firewood. They don't have to wonder, will they have enough food tomorrow? What does it say when we never have any policy input from people who are actually the victims of or living at ground zero in any of the ecological disaster areas or in the in the areas where we have continued to have input without concern for the outcome. Well, you, you've actually earlier put your finger on it. One of the big problems is that the media hasn't been doing a good job on these issues, but of course it traces back to we scientists as well. We have not, as a group, put enough time into trying to educate the public. But I'll give you a, a, a very nice example. That is in uh, 1993, Essentially, all the world's academies of science, the Third World Academy, the British Royal Society, our National Academy, uh, on and on and on, got out a document which said, basically, if we don't do something about population and consumption, uh, we've had it. You know, we're going the wrong direction. The same year, 1,500 of the world's leading scientists published something called The World Scientists Warning to Humanity which said the same thing, that society is on a collision course with the natural systems and we won't be able to sustain it. Neither of those things, even though the, the world uh, scientists warning to humanity had a public relations campaign by it, neither of them made it into the New York Times, the Washington Post, or into any of the things that are uh, basically news channels today. I'm not talking about you know dumb entertainment and propaganda like the uh, uh, Fox News, but I mean outfits that pretend to actually produce news. None of them made it. There was no coverage of the fact that the scientific community said in no uncertain terms, the global scientific community, that, and by the way, the one statement was signed by more than half of the living Nobel laureates in science, um, no attention was paid. It's not news that we're wrecking the planet. It's not news that, uh, for, I'll give you a good example. Uh, the United States just celebrated going through 300 million people. This morning, one of the top news stories was the problem of trying to build more freeways to get us to 24-lane freeways instead of 12-lane freeways. Not a word has been said about the fact that we would have no imported oil problem and that our greenhouse gas emissions would be way less than they are today uh, if we had the same population size we had in 1945 when we just won the biggest war uh, that up to that time had been fought. So the media just don't cover the news. Sorry well, to be a little bit... <laughs> you have to understand, and you do, who owns the news. And do you feel that who owns the news and the monopoly of news, the concentration of power, has reduced uh, the viable options that are available to people? I think that's very true. I'm hoping that the Internet might solve that. But again, there's also questions of who owns the Internet. It's a, I mean, I was a correspondent for NBC News for several years, and I saw it from the inside. And um, it's just it's a mess and you know the airways are public we own them as uh, you know american citizens own our airways 
but they're basically sold off to uh, to business interests, which then quite naturally pursue their own short-term interests because they they don't deal with really good economists. They deal with Wall Street Journal economists. In other words, I'm working here at Stanford with Ken Arrow, who's the best economist in the world, has a Nobel Prize, and in Europe with Partha Dasgupta and so on and so forth. All those economists understand what kind of trouble we're in. But the business economists have very high discount rates, which mean what happens in six years doesn't mean a damn thing to them. The world's over in six or ten years, and so they can have no concern at all for their children or grandchildren, and that's the way the world functions, as if we don't care what happens ten years down the line, although that, that time stretch may be shortening, thanks to George Bush. When you look at the era that you grew up in as a teenager, college student, and thereafter, how would it be different today when you see people who worship money and the power that it, they believe it gives them and the position to make decisions that impact other people's lives? Well, let me, let me say, first of all, something cheery, and that is when I was a kid, lynchings were common in the South. Women had no opportunity in our society. Uh, the prejudice against racial minorities was much, much worse. Those things have changed in the right direction. But what's happened is that, that our ability to destroy the world has increased much more rapidly than our ability to change the way we treat each other and our environment. In other words, um, you know, the, the American historians just voted 85% to 15% that George W. Bush was the worst president we've ever had. They, the people voting, didn't even understand what he's doing to women, what he's doing to the environment, the power he has. In other words, Tyler may have been a terrible president. He couldn't blow up the world if he wanted to. But here we are, a rogue nation with 10,000 nuclear weapons. We have not followed the nuclear, the, what, the, the, the treaty we signed about getting rid of them, and we're now, the Bush administration is planning to build even more. While we complain about countries like North Korea and Iran, trying to get nuclear weapons. Well, George Bush has announced to the world that if you don't have nuclear weapons, we're likely to invade you. So, of course, Iran wants to have nuclear weapons. The leadership would have to be crazy not to. Were you, were you able to hear the comment I made about um, the, the three new treaties, trade treaties we're trying to iron out, and the only way that they will be ironed out is the Republican majority has finally... Um, Republican minority has finally agreed to uh, throw in the towel on child labor abuse in South America. But up I, until no, this I time... I hear that, but the, the trade situation is extraordinarily complex, and what it boils to right now is, um, you know, we, we have the tariffs and they get the free trade, and, they, and basically poor countries and poor people are still being, uh, you know, screwed over uh, with the trades. So again, uh, we have a bunch of economists who remember uh, Adam Smith's book, uh, The Wealth of Nations, and never read his earlier book, which was on the theory of moral sentiments, which said um, all of the, the markets and so on have to function in an ethical, moral world. And we have no ethical commitment to the poor farmers in Latin America, for instance, that we're swamping with our crops. So uh, I'm not sure the details of the trade uh, system are very, very complex. The results are mixed. But the basic result is that poor people get the short end of the stick, which is true around the world and getting truer in the United States. After all, all those poor people who have been shot to pieces and were trying to survive in uh, George Bush's hospital in, uh, uh, in Washington, D.C., 
they didn't come from the uh, rich part of our society. They're mostly poor kids who went over to Vietnam, uh, to Vietnam, there's a Freudian slip, went over to Iraq thinking they were protecting us from terrorism when they were actually recruiting terrorists. And we have not taken care of our veterans from any war, but certainly from this uh, current war, and it's a disgrace. What Sorry you... to get off on that rant, but I, like That's all right. of my colleagues, I have never been so frustrated by the state of both our environmental systems, which we depend on to support us, to support our very lives, and the state of our political system, where we have a government that's moving rapidly away from what the Founding Fathers imagined, the separation of powers, where the Congress was going to be the most powerful part of our government, is probably gone permanently. It's not clear whether we'll ever recover our Republican form of government. We now are faced with the 12 tipping points. Would you address any one of those and why we should start to do something more than just be casually interested in them? Well, the most, the most obvious one at the moment, and the one that's getting the most public relations on the environmental side, is climate change. And if we don't start doing dramatic things to reduce the flux of greenhouse gases, we are setting ourselves up uh, for a vast catastrophe. Nobody knows exactly what will happen, but, for example, about a, a sixth of the world's wheat is grown in India, Pakistan, Nepal, uh, Bangladesh, within a degree or two of the limit at which you can grow wheat. In other words, if it gets a little bit warmer down there, we're going to have a sixth of the world's wheat production, which feeds some of the poorest people in the world uh, uh, in grave danger. Same thing, by the way, with rice. Grains are going to be in generally in trouble. And uh, the problem is, at one time, if you, you, know, you didn't care about other people, you could just say, well, yeah, a lot of people are going to starve to death in India, Nepal, Pakistan, and so on. What people seem to not notice is that both the, the Indians and Pakistanis have more than enough nuclear weapons that if they get into a war over food there and nuclear weapons are used, the, not only will the world economy be wrecked, but the world's climate could be wrecked too. As recent studies have shown, there's enough nuclear weapons now in South Asia to cause very serious climate disruption, which might, for example, ruin food supplies in the United States if we can keep our production up. And again, climate change, if it goes the wrong direction, we could be even hungry in the United States, although it's less likely than in India. So uh, I would say that is the major tipping point there. And I think politically, the major tipping point is can the U.S. withdraw from its, its idea that it's an empire that's going to run all the rest of the world. Remember, Osama bin Laden, who was a deadly enemy of Saddam, Saddam Hussein, uh, was very specific about why we were attacked, and that was because we had troops uh, in, uh, in uh, Saudi Arabia. And the idea that somehow the, that Muslims hate us because we have liberty is just pure nonsense. Uh, the crazy Muslims, of which there are some, hate us because of things we were doing in their countries. Uh, and uh, until, you know, until the media start pointing out that Saddam Hussein nasty man that he was, was a secular dictator who was a deadly enemy of the people who attacked us, uh, then uh, I don't see where the country's ever going to turn in the right direction. Do you believe that this or any administration is capable of acknowledging its mistakes and, in effect, trying to make amends by shifting direction? Well, I, I certainly don't think this direction, this administration is. Uh, I know Condi Rice personally. She doesn't understand enough of the situation to reverse it if she wasn't a liar. I mean, you can tell Condi's lying when her lips are moving. 
Uh, so I don't think there's a prayer of this administration going in the right direction. I'm not thrilled uh, by the prospect of a Democratic administration, but it, it would be very, very difficult uh, to produce an administration worse than this one. This administration has made mistake after mistake, lying all the way in. Again, the run-up to the Iraq war was transparent of virtually everybody who had any education in this country, uh, and we knew why they were doing it, and they were doing it for the wrong reason, and it got into precisely the kind of mess that everybody predicted. Uh, there's no way they're going to admit. They haven't even admitted their mistakes in Abu Ghraib. You know, all they do is take lower-down people and say, it's your fault, you know, we're going to get rid of this sergeant or that colonel. Even the Walter Reed mess uh, is it's clearly the fault of George W. Bush and Rumsfeld. It may have a long history, but that could have been fixed. But they're trying to make sure that the money goes to their buddies in Kellogg Root uh, and places like that. In other words, this is a, a war for oil, and it's a program to give more and more of the uh, basically uh, a subsidy to the aerospace industry, the military industrial complex. Remember, 40 percent of our military budget is secret. Uh, it's basically a welfare program. Everybody understands that. In other words, the the way you keep the empire going is made work, and it's been going now since about 1945, in the form of a gigantic military without much to do that's reasonable. So uh, about 50 percent of our military effort is designed to control oil and oil uh, pathways where oil is shipped. If, if you looked at the economics carefully and you said, okay, that's an externality that ought to be internalized in our gasoline prices, that would add about 75 cents at least to each gallon of gas. In other words, if we paid the full cost of having the gas, instead we pay it through taxes uh, to maintain a gigantic military to keep hold of the oil that we shouldn't, along with the coal, be burning. We should have tra started transitioning away from it 20, 30 years ago easily when all this was obvious. I appreciate your answer. Thank you. One of my concerns is that I just finished a detailed analysis of President, former President Clinton's foreign and domestic policies involving our environment, where he and Gore substantially compromised the entire environmental movement on um, the military-industrial complex. He ended up at that time giving the largest amount of money in the history to the military-industrial complex, to the defense budget. In fact, he actually in one year gave them $10 billion more than what they asked for. So I have to ask, are, with the, with the 36,000 lobbyists in Washington and the enormous amount of money given by major groups like the pharmaceutical industry and the pesticide industry and the arms industry, are we able at this time to have a Democrat or Republican that is able to say, my interest is for the American people, not for the special interest groups, and I'm willing to make decisions irrespective of how unpopular they may be with the special interest groups to finally start to change things. Are we, uh, are we I, capable I of that? I agree with you more. I mean, uh, that's, that's why I said I was hardly thrilled by the Democrats. We've got to somehow, among other things, get rid of the uh, $1, one-vote system that, that you know, you get, we have the best politicians money can buy. As long as the politicians, even the honest ones, have to work like crazy to try and raise money to stay, stay in office, uh, the system isn't going to work. The system is badly broken, but how one changes it, uh, again, uh, you know, you're, you're discussing it on the air, but I don't think you'll see it on CNN. Uh, much more important that we talk about uh, Anna Nicole Smith's body or baby. Uh, so the American public is just in the dark on all of this stuff. 
Uh, one, I, I don't know, have you read um, uh, the new book by Chalmers Johnson called Nemesis? Yes. Okay, that's something I would recommend to every high school student. It has a better view of what's going on, not on the environmental front, but on the political front and uh, on the way our country is moving away from the, the standards of the founding fathers that I've seen recently. Uh, I don't know what that, what did you think of it? I agree. In fact, recently I visited some islands, uh, St. Bart's, uh, St. John's, uh, Turk, and what I found was that you have beautiful resorts that people go to, that multinational companies own, that give you all the best services, but then early in the morning you start seeing from the shacks across the street all the poorest people coming to work for as little as $3 a day. And I'm thinking... Why, why can't they see this? I would never go stay at a resort that was being operated by exploitive labor in an environment that never shared any of its wealth with the surrounding community to build up its sustainable quality of life. And yet that seems to be the pattern of existence with the people in power today, with the hedge fund owners, with the equity partnerships, with Wall Street. They don't care about whether or not what they're investing in or the money they're making makes a better world. They only care about making more profit. And I think that the American public has got to be responsible to this at some point. Well, I, I, I of course, agree. I've been, I've been all over the world doing field work. And everywhere the situation you described, or virtually everywhere, is the sort of thing that's going on. In, in some places like Brazil and India and China, you're getting basically large, uh, rich countries in the middle of gigantic Poor countries. In other words, the, you know, China's got 1.3 billion people, but there's a, a country the size of the United States, maybe 300 million, that are doing very, very well. But the rest of them are drifting back further into poverty. And even, even in countries that have done a lot of the right things and are trying to do well, like Costa Rica, when we do field work there, we often work with children. And one of the problems is that the children are very often malnourished, and we have to try and find ways. They're very proud to get food them without making it obvious we're giving them food in other words you want to give them gifts that are nutritious but uh, not an obvious handout and so on and it's it's just would make you cry and uh, you know and here we are with this gigantic problem of overeating in this country but it's all going to come to an end in other words this this can't go on forever the resources are getting very very short the climate change is upon us much more rapidly than the scientific community thought, by the way. When I wrote The Population Bomb, we didn't even know about half of the greenhouse forcing. I mean, I wrote about the problem of greenhouse warming, but we th I thought it was going to be a problem for way into this century, and the discoveries that were made between then and now have shown that it's going to be a problem for uh, the immediate future. So, um, you know, we, we, we're... One of the something that was said many years ago um, is uh, the attitude that we can't continue to have. You know, it's just the poor people are in trouble. It's like saying to fellow passengers, your end of the lifeboat is sinking. Hmm. We're out of time. Thank you very much, Professor Paul Ehrlich, for being with us today. I very much appreciate it. I'm Gary Nall. Thank you all for listening. We'll see you tomorrow. Have a great day.